Second Samuel 22. You know, we, uh, we get often get so caught up in busyness of life, in the routine of life, we just don't stop and we, don't, we fail to stop and, and praise God and thank God for all the blessings he's given us. We talked about this last week. You know, we, we get busy. We have a schedule to keep. We're in a hurry. We have obligations to meet. We have places to be. We've got things to do. There's always things we've got to do. And there are many legitimate things that we do, but all the while the Lord is giving us, he's providing for us our daily bread. He's giving us all things richly to enjoy. Now, he's sustaining our eternal salvation. So many things, and yet we fail to praise him. How often do we actually take time to stop and praise and thank him for what he's done for us? Well, David thought it was important, and he does that in many of his psalms. As you, as you read the psalms, you see that David is often giving... God, the thanks he deserves. And that's what he does in 2 Samuel 22. Look at 2 Samuel 22, verse 1. It says, And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord, and the day the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. David put aside his busy schedule as the king of Israel, and he took time to give praise to the Lord. Second Samuel 22 is not a theological treatise. It's, it's a song. It's poetry is what it is. We need to view it as a song. It's not, it's poetic, it's not didactic. In other words, it's not like one of the epistles of Paul where you have these tightly worded arguments on theology and all that. That's not what this is. This is, an, this is a song. It's, it's meant to be expressive. And we're to follow the flow of this song as, as, as it comes forth. And we need to remember that this, because it is a song, it's coming forth from David's heart. This is how David feels, not only thinks and knows of the Lord, but he feels this from the depths of his heart. And this is, also inspired of God. It's inspired scripture. And it's, you know, one of the things that is it's great to me about the inspired scripture is that God uh, made allowances for the, uh, the personality of the writer. Uh, you have a, a person, Paul being a different writer, type writer, different personality than David was or than John was or, or other writers. And God allowed for everyone's unique personality to shine through as he, as he inspired his word. 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit. It's, all, it's, it's men moved by the Holy Spirit speaking from God. God inspired the Word, but men wrote the Word. And one of the things I love about the Scripture is that it's not all the same. It's all these, all these varieties there. You've got narratives, like we're often in in, these, in this historical books, and you've got You've got uh, the teaching uh, of Paul. You've got wisdom literature. You've got poetry. You have all these different types of literature in the Bible. God gave his word in a variety of ways. But our job is to, find, to follow the flow. We're to follow the flow of the Scripture as it is presented in that manner. That's what we're to do. And notice whom David is addressing. It says in verse 1, he spoke the words of this song to who? To the Lord, right? He's not even speaking this to us primarily. He's speaking these words to the Lord. He's giving praise to God. And, and we're able, we're, we get to listen in. And we get to learn something about um, prayer and, and how to pray. And we learn in this psalm, it really is a psalm, and, and Daniel read uh, Psalm 18, which is very similar to this, that we learned that we're, when we approach God, we, we're approaching with praise and thanksgiving. Well, I've grouped this chapter under five headings to give us some order, but I want us to remember this is a song. It's very poetic. First of all, we have praise for the Lord's strength. David offers praise for the Lord's strength in verses 2 and 3. We looked at it last week. Verse 2, he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, 
my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. You saved me from violence, he says. David has been delivered out of the hand of all of his enemies, verse 1 says. So as a result, he pours out his heart uh, in gratitude to God. And he first of all gives praise for God's strength. That's what he does here. All these descriptive titles of God. uh, You can tell David has a very personal relationship with God because he says he's my rock, he's my fortress, he's my deliverer, he's my God, he's my shield, he's the horn of my salvation, he's my stronghold, he's my refuge, he's my savior. All these words point to the strength and protection of God for David as he's delivered from the hand of his enemies. And David praised the Lord for God's strength. We saw that last week. Moving on, secondly, for his praise for the Lord's deliverance. <clears throat> That's in verses 4 to 20. Praise for the Lord's deliverance. Now, in the first section, verses 2 and 3, we've already noted the idea of deliverance is there. Uh, it's introduced. That's a key thought in this chapter, by the way, God's deliverance. Verse 1 says that uh, this, these words were spoken when David was delivered, it says, from the hand of his enemies. And then in verse 2, it says, the Lord is my deliverer. Verse 3 talks about uh, David's Savior who saves him. And these words, Savior and save and salvation, all mean to deliver. And then, and then we go to verses 4 to 20. And now David will speak of the desperate condition he was in when God, that required God's deliverance. He was in a desperate condition. And then he's going to describe the deliverance of God in a very poetic way, as we're going to see. <clears throat> so first of all, let's look at David's desperate need for deliverance. Verses 4 to 7. He says, I, will, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death com- encompass me, the torrents of destruction overwhelm me, the cords of Sheol uh, surrounded me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I, crawl, I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God, and from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry for help came into his ears. And don't just look at this poem and say, wow, what a nice poem, beautiful literature that David has here. Uh, it's far more than that. David was often knocking at death's door. He was very well acquainted with near-death experiences. Saul had a worn out in his life. We remember that when we studied 1 Samuel. And he was so distressed. David was so distressed about, his, about the possibility of dying. He thought about it often. He told Jonathan, his best friend in 1 Samuel 20, verse 3, he said, Truly, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. I think that I'm going to die because he, was, he had this constant threat of death hanging over his head. He was so discouraged that when you get to 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1, he has a conversation with himself. I don't know if you remember when we talked about that. It says in 1 Samuel 27, verse 1, literally, he says, David said in his heart, he's talking to himself, he says, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. I'm going to die. Saul's going to kill me. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. He was so sure that Saul was going to kill him, he even left his own land of Israel, God's land, and he goes to this pagan land to live for 16 months. He's hounded by this idea of death, by being put to death by Saul, and not only him, but all his enemies. He thinks about it a lot. Verse 4, it refers to his enemies in general. It's all of, all of his enemies. He faces the very real possibility of death on several occasions. <clears throat> so he, he talks about that. In verses 5 and 6, he pictures death in two ways. Number one, he looks at death as waters that are ready to drown him. And then number two, he looks at death as a hunter that's ready to trap him. That's how he sees, his, often has, has seen things. 
First of all, David pictures death, his own death, as waters that are ready to drown him. Look at verse 5, and even that's divided further into two ways. There's the waves of death in the first line and the torrents of destruction in the second line. He says, <clears throat> verse 5, the waves of, waves of death encompass me. Now, waves are a powerful force. They can get extremely... I mean, if you've ever seen uh, pictures of, or, or a video of, the, of, for example, the Bering Sea, and you see the ships out there just... 90-foot, 100-foot waves come crashing down on the ships. It's unbelievable, the force that, that's out there. I, I read that the biggest wave on record was, I don't know if this is true anymore or not, uh, was uh, in Alaska, as a matter of fact, there was a, a wave that was 1,720 feet tall in a tsunami. Now, whether that's been, that record's been smashed by now in Asia or not, I don't know. But even those of you who have gone to the beach in Florida, and you've gone up there with the small waves that we have here, and sometimes... We used to go, uh, we used to wait for it to, uh, at times, for the wind to kick up and the rain. Then we go out there, not in the lightning, to body surf, because that's when the waves are getting better. If it started lightning, we got off the beach, just so you'll know. We weren't fools about it. But even small waves can knock you down, and waves are a powerful force. And David saw his, his, his life like that often when he was surrounded by his enemies. He felt like this is, like there were waves crashing in on him, like he's going to die. He's being surrounded by the waves of death encompassed by them, engulfed by them. No means of escape. That's how he felt. He felt that deeply in his soul, like he oftentimes was not going to escape death. And then it's pictured in the same, in the same uh, uh, idea in verse 5, waters of death, waters that, that are going to cause him to drown. The torrents of destruction, it says, overwhelm me, David says. Now, that's the parallel line to the first one, still talking about the waters that are going to drown him. Uh, what's, what's the torrents of destruction? Israel had riverbeds. They called wadis uh, still do and uh, they're a dry part of the year but when it, the rainy season starts those wa- those riverbeds can can uh, be filled up to the point so much so that they can uh, they can overflood and they can become a raging water or floods of, of water and so david felt like his enemies were a raging torrent that were going to sweep him away they were going to destroy him he was, over, he was going to be overwhelmed. It said, that word means to be overtaken by sudden terror. David was afraid for his life, oftentimes. That's how he felt. And then you have the second picture, as uh, uh, David felt like the death uh, was as a hunter ready to trap him. It says in verse 6, the cords of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. The cords or ropes can be used as a snare to entrap someone. <clears throat> uh, Sheol is the grave, the place of departed spirits. In the parallel line there, it says, the snares of death confronted me. Now, the word snares there has to do with a bait that's placed in a, in a trap to catch birds, of all things. Amos 3.5 picks up on this idea. Amos 3.5 uses the same word. It says, does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? The word bait translated in Amos 3.5 is the same word translated snares in 2 Samuel 22.6. And so death is personified as a, as a hunter coming after David, ready to trap him, ready to ensnare him so he can walk into its trap and, and be killed. And so we see the grim reaper spent much time going after David. And David thought about it. And he was gripped by it often. And he felt that, that way in this chapter, that, that he was at the point of death often. And so what did David do when he found himself in this situation where he's under this great distress where death is imminent? <clears throat> verses 4 and 7 give the answer. In verse 4, David makes this resolve. Look at verse 4. He says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I'm going to call upon the Lord. He's worthy to be praised. Now, that's a resolve all of us need to make. Prayer should be something that's in season and out of season for us always. We should be at it 
uh, daily when our things are going good, when things are going bad. But, but, but thankfully, when our lives are falling apart, the Lord is there for us. He's there for us if we'll go to him. And under such circumstances, we should do what David did, call upon the Lord, because he alone is worthy of praise and, and of, of seeking him. Verse 7, David says, In my distress, my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried to my God. It's David's distress that, that drew him to God, and I think that's what it was designed to do. Isn't, doesn't distress draw you to God? Doesn't when you're in times of distress and fear and anxiety, doesn't that draw you to God? pushes you to him. James 5.13 says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. That's the answer. What do you do when you are facing affliction and distress, despair? What do you do when you get frustrated and you're worried and you're fearful? And Do you carry the burden yourself or do you take it to the Lord? Is there anybody here in this auditorium tonight afflicted? Let him or her pray. That's the advice that James gives. That's what David did. Call upon the Lord. Now, prior to the cross, Matthew 26, 36, says Jesus began to be grieved and distressed. Think about this. Jesus, Son of God, grieved and distressed, it says. How grieved? It says he was deeply grieved, to the, even to the point of death, it says. He felt like, and he, and he was at the point of death, as a matter of fact, and he was grieved about that, it says. You know, he was the man of sorrows, and he was very much acquainted with grief. He knew about it. So what did he do with his deep grief? <clears throat> he says to his disciples in Matthew 26, sit here while I go over there and pray. I'm going to pray and seek my father, he says. Before our Lord faced the agony of a cruel death on the cross and, and securing the salvation for his people, he took his grief and distress that he felt deeply to the Lord in prayer. He felt it and he went to God. That's what David did when he was in desperation and facing death. That's what we should do when we're in, in, in any kind of affliction, or even in facing death itself. And did the Lord respond to David? Yeah, it says in verse 7, David says, I cried to my God, and from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry for help came into his ears. Now, when he says temple, in, in this context, he's not talking about an earthly temple. He's talking about the, a heavenly temple. He's talking about the Lord in heaven in a descriptive way. Psalm eleven four, 4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So in other words, David heard, the Lord heard God's, David's prayer, I'm sorry, the Lord heard David's prayer in heaven, and he answered him. And the same is true of David's descendant, Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed when he was in grief, and he said, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And did God answer Jesus? Well, the account in Luke 22 says, An angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. So the Lord, the Lord answers the prayers of those who are committed to his will, as he did David, as he did the Lord himself, Lord Jesus. That's his deep, desperate condition that he's in. You can feel the desperate uh, nature of his condition. And then David's poetic description of deliverance, that's in verses 8 to 20. Um, let's read that. Look at his deliverance by God, eight, verses 8 to 20. Then the earth shook, David said, and quaked. <clears throat> the foundations of heaven were trembling. And we're shaken because he was angry. God's angry because his servant is in trouble. A smoke went up out of his nostrils. Fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. And he rode on a cherub and flew. And he appeared on the wings of the wind and made darkness canopies around him. 
a massive waters, thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were laid bare. <clears throat> By the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me forth into a broad place. Now, to put this in theological terms, this is called theophany, which means a divine appearance, an appearance by God. The Lord appears in this passage as a divine warrior coming to rescue David from danger, from his death even. Now, technically, this theophany runs from chapter, verses 8 to 16, but the results of it are found in verses 17 through the beginning of verse 20. This deliverance of David is not just one specific instance, by the way. It kind of is a general reference to verse 1 because it talks about how David was rescued from all his enemies. It's not just one time. And by the way, this is not the only time in the Bible you see a theophany. This reminds us of uh, the one in uh, Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 19, verse 16 has a similar description. When God came to Mount Sinai and gave the Ten Commandments, listen to what it says in Exodus 19, 16. It says, when it was morning there, there, when it was morning, there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now, Mount, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. And you see it in other places in Judges 4 and 5 when Deborah wrote her song of deliverance after the Lord delivered those people out of, out of death and you see it in Micah chapter 1, Micah 1, 3. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down on a steep place. These theophanies are vivid. They're vivid descriptions of God and his power and his glory as a divine warrior. But unlike the, the, the uh, theophany in Exodus 19, this one in 2 Samuel 22 is not an actual historical account didn't happen like this. It's just a picturesque way of David uh, telling us that God is a great deliverer. This is how he, this is a song. It's poetry. We're meant to feel. We're meant to feel the earthquake as, it's, as, it, as it breaks up the ground. We're meant to visualize the fire and the smoke, David talks about. And we're meant to hear the thunder. Remember, this is a song. It's poetry. That's what he's talking about here. He's trying to achieve a certain effect. So why didn't David just say, well, the Lord delivered me? Well, it wouldn't have the same effect, would it? It'd be pretty, pretty dull to say. He could say that, and he has said, and that is said in the scriptures at different times, but this poem gets it across in a way that other, other ways can't. It shows how majestic, how powerful. That's what David wants to do. David wants to show us the majesty and power of God through poet, in, in a poetic way. That's what he's doing here. David's not giving a lecture on theology with a bunch of dull details. He's, he's showing us, he's impressing upon us the, the great, he's painting for us a picture of the greatness and power of God. And how God can deliver his people from the, even the worst of predicaments. And the point in, in this chapter is this. We are weak. We're vulnerable. But the Lord is powerful. He's all-powerful. He's almighty. He can deliver anybody. And nothing is impossible for, for God. He can deliver from any situation. That's the point. We're weak. We've got to call upon God. And that's the, we need to understand that. He's strong. He's powerful. Not hindered. He's not hindered by intimidating enemies like we are. He's not 
troubled by the idea of death. He's not distressed like we are. Verse 18, David says, He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. David says, they were too strong for me. David wasn't, was a realist. He, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't under any illusions that he had some great power greater than himself that he possessed. It was all of God. David said, my enemies are too strong for me, but they're not too strong for God. And God delivered David. And even though David's enemies confronted him, verse 19 says, they confronted him. That's a hostile confrontation. David felt that confrontation. He says, nevertheless, the Lord was my support. You see, David is always looking to the Lord in these things, in these battles. Now you say, wait a minute. Where did all this happen at? As As you look back on David's life, you think about the times that God delivered David from death. You don't see any lightning and thunder. You don't see any smoke or fire or earthquakes, none of that. You do see David eluding a spear that's thrown by Saul on more than one occasion, and he escapes death from Saul. You do read about Saul going after David to kill him, and yet the Spirit of God comes upon uh, Saul in 1 Samuel 19, and it thwarts the mission of, of, of Saul to kill David. That, it stops that mission. You do see Michal, his first wife, letting David down through a window so he can escape. The, Saul's men are surrounded the house, and she lets him down by, in a window so he can escape. You see all that. <clears throat> there's no trumpets blaring. There's no, there's no bands playing. There's no earthquakes. But David, God is working behind the scenes to deliver his man. And that's what he, the point is. God is a great deliverer. David's telling us this in a poetic way. David wants to see and feel this, this great God who delivers. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a message that we don't register just as a mere fact of theology alone. He wants to make an impression upon our senses. That's what he's doing here, reaching out and saying, look, this is a great and powerful God we serve. Can't you see that? And if God wanted to come in the this, in this, in this splendor and glory he talks about here, he could do that too. You know, someone <clears throat> years ago in the 1800s, George Whitfield, which is said to be the greatest preacher England ever had, by the way. And when he preached, uh, thousands of people would come to the open air uh, in the fields to hear him preach. Uh, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 50,000 people would come in the open air, uh, in the open fields to hear him preach. And he, and he preached like they said. He, when he even said the word Mesopotamia, people would weep because he had this power from God to preach. And uh, a guy came up to him and said, Mr. Whitfield, can I put your sermons into print? <clears throat> Whitfield said, I have no inherent objection, if you like, but you will never be able to put on the printed page the lightning and the thunder. You know, I can read, I can go back in history and read the sermons of George Whitfield. And I can say, well, this is a great sermon, but I can never hear them preached by George Whitfield himself and, and see the people, as sometimes people threw things at him too, like tomatoes and so on. I can never see that happening. I can never feel the thunder and lightning of George Whitfield preaching. And, you know, can, do we really grasp this chapter? As, as we're reading it, do we really see this, that God is a glorious? He's a glorious God. That's what David wants us to see. And what did, when, he, when God delivered David, verse 20 says, he brought me forth into a broad place. That's a place of freedom. David was in distress, which means a tight, a tight place, a tight space. He was, he, was, he was cramped by his circumstances. He was uh, in distress, and yet God brings him out into a place of freedom. The Lord's an all-powerful deliverer. That's what David's saying. He can deliver uh, people from enemies, physical enemies. He can deliver people from distresses of all kinds. 
He can deliver people from sin and, 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 and uh, judgment. He can do all these things. Now, when we see a person who is, claims to be a believer, we can see uh, maybe a changed life. We can see his life beginning to change. We can see his baptism. We can, we can watch that. We can hear his testimony given. And we can do all these things. But here's the thing. Can we observe how the Lord worked in this person's heart? Can we see that? No, we can't see that. <clears throat> can we see how God took this person's stony heart and softened it up and, and made it submissive to his will? Can we see that? We don't see that. Can we see how the Lord uh, looked, worked into the, uh, looked into the inner workings of a person's heart and, and changed him and, and gave him the gift of faith to believe the gospel? Can we see all that happening? No, none of us can. But God is at work, and, he's, and Christ is rescuing people from the domain of Satan and bringing, in, bringing them into the kingdom of his dear son. And he does it, and it's real, and it's definite, and it happens. And yet, we don't know how it happens. We, we can see the lifestyle change, and we don't know how God worked and all that. It's like John 3.8 says. John 3.8 says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's a mystery to us how the Lord works, how the Lord reaches down in a person's life. Maybe you give someone... Uh, you talk to someone about the gospel, and the Lord reaches down mysteriously somehow, and he, and he works in this person's life and brings him to himself. He does this. And so he's a glorious God who's able to deliver people, and he deserves our praise for it. <clears throat> and David praises him, and he says, first of all, he praises him for his strength, and he praises him for his deliverance. And then thirdly, there's praise for the Lord's favor. Praise for the Lord's favor, verse, uh, the end of verse 20 through 28. We're not going to get through all of this uh, point tonight. Verse 20, he also brought me forth into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me, he says. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly acted against my God. For all his ordinances were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless toward him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness before his eyes. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. With the perverted, you show yourself astute. And you save an afflicted people, but your eyes are on the haughty whom you abase. <clears throat> now, why did David deliver the Lord? Uh, why did the Lord deliver David, rather, from his enemies? He did so because it says in verse 20, he rescued me because he delighted in me. He delighted in me. The, the, the word delighted means he, to show great favor towards something. In this case, David. God showed favor, great favor towards David. The Lord favored David. We know that anyway. In, in many ways, he favored David. He chose him to be the king of Israel. He made this, established this covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7. He said that your line is going to go all the way and, and the Messiah is going to come through that line eventually. And he took great delight in David. As he, as he always takes great delight in his elect. He takes great delight. He took great delight in the nation of Israel. They, they re, rebelled against him often, but he delighted in them. He takes great, great delight in his elect today, his people, that, he, that knows him. But, you know, what about these further words of David? Does he sound like a Pharisee here to you? He talks about his righteousness, his clean hands. He says, I haven't acted wickedly. He claims to be blameless. He says the Lord has rewarded him for his clean living. 
Now, think back about on David's life. Does that sound like the David we read about in 2 Samuel, in the book of 2 Samuel? Is David a hypocrite? Is he like the Pharisee uh, in uh, Luke 18 who said, I, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other people are? Is that, what, is that what this is? And the answer is no. So what are we to make of David's words when he says all these things? Well, I've got several points to make concerning these verses. First of all, David is not trying to praise himself. It's not what he's doing here in these verses. One commentator wrote of the self-promotion of the poetry. He says, David's promoting himself in this poetry. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. David was not, that was not David's objective. His objective is to praise the Lord, as we saw from the beginning, not himself. Now, it may seem that here that he's trying to give himself some glory, but as we have seen from the beginning of this poem, <clears throat> this song, David is out to praise who? God, right? Not himself. The Lord delivered him. He, he said, I was in desperate need. I couldn't save myself. I was worried. I was afraid of death. And yet God deli- reached down and delivered me, he says. He's not going to praise himself now in the midstream here. He's not doing that. His emphasis has been on the Lord. Secondly, David is not claiming sinless perfection. Look at verse 24. David says, I was also blameless toward him. Well, some may get the idea David was claiming sinless perfection here by saying that. The word blameless does not mean sinless. It means wholeness, completeness, integrity. He's not claiming to be sinless. He's claiming to have a whole heart towards God. He's wholehearted towards God. And all of us here know that David loved the Lord. Another reason we we know that David is not claiming sinlessness is because, look what he says in verse 24. Again, he said, I've kept myself from my iniquity, my iniquity. David knows he's got iniquity in his life. By the way, the word iniquity means one who deviates off the path that God has set. God has set a path to walk on, a path of righteousness. This is a person deviating from that path. And David doesn't deny his iniquity. He says, it's my iniquity. But he says, I've kept myself from my iniquity. And the word kept means to be on one's guard, to be careful, to exercise great care. He says, I've been careful to keep myself from my iniquity, is what he says. David knew what kind of sin he was capable of committing. He knew it. He he was well acquainted with what he could do sinfully. And so he says, if I'm I'm careless or unguarded, I'm in trouble then. And so he says, I've kept myself. Isn't that what Christ told his disciples to do, basically, in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Watch is the idea of being alert. Keep alert and pray lest you enter into temptation. And so many verses like that. Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Watch over your heart, we're warned. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, Pay close attention to yourself. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, for in doing this, you're going to ensure salvation, both for yourself and for those who hear you, he says. And so we're to pay close attention to ourselves. Let me ask you a question. Do we play a role in our sanctification or not? That was the, do we just say let go and let God? That was the error of the Keswick movement. David knew himself and he knew his weakness. And so he says, I've guarded myself from my iniquity. I know I'm a man of iniquity. I'm, I'm guarding against that. Now, he didn't do that always, obviously. There was times he fell. If we let down, when we let down our guard and give in our iniquity, that's when, that's, that's when we have the trouble. So David does not consider himself to be sinless. And then thirdly, David is not claiming a justification by works. Not doing that here. He's not saying, you know, he's not saying something like this. The enemy's the evil one. 
However, I'm righteous. I've achieved righteousness in my own self. I dug down deep inside and I found the goodness that was there and I'm righteous. I can claim that. He's not doing that. If that were true, Romans 4 4 would contradict the passage and a lot of other things that David said would contradict this passage. It says in Romans 4, 6, David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. David knew he was a sinful man. He's not saying he's justified by works. Nobody's justified by works. Nobody here, nobody in, in this world is good enough to please a holy God. Nobody can do that. It's only by God's grace. As we come to Christ that we're justified in his sight. By faith, not works. He's not claiming a justification by works. Thirdly, the general course of, life, of David's life was godly. The general course of David's life, the direction of his David's life, as we say, was godly. We talk about direction, not perfection. And certainly none of us are perfect. But what is the direction of your life? Mike talked about this this morning. What is the direction of your life? Is it godly or is it ungodly? There's a good way to tell if you know the Lord or not. What's the direction? Do you desire to live for God? Do you have a desire to, to come and hear the word of God preached? Do you have that desire within you? If you don't, well, that's a bad sign, isn't it? Matthew Henry says, concerning these verses in 2 Samuel 22, he says this, David had not wickedly departed from his God. He could not say he had not taken any false steps, because he had taken false steps, but he had not deserted God nor forsaken his way. Talking about verse 23. Verse 23 says, For all his ordinances were before me, David says, as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. Matthew Henry says he did not desert God, didn't depart from God. He says, sins of infirmity, sins of weakness, David could not acquit himself from, but the grace of God had kept him from presumptuous sins. He says, though sometimes he had weakly, W-E-A-K, E-A-K-L-Y, he had weakly departed from God. Now, in other words, David had given in to the weakness of his flesh at times, but he never forsook God. He didn't do that. When you read David's life, read David's life in in its entirety. No, not the chapter 11 and 12, and that's the of 2 Samuel. And some people think that's all there is to David. But read the entirety of his life. It's a life that's not marked by evil. It's marked by godliness overall. The, the whole body of his life marked by godliness. We have to keep that in mind. We're tempted after reading 2 Samuel to think that David's no better than the pagans. But that would be a wrong assessment. And it's good for us to ask the question ourselves, the question, um, does my conduct in general reflect uh, the fact that I know Christ is the direction of my life one that pleases God. Is this how I'm living now? If I'm not living this way as, as, a, as the rule of my life, then maybe I need to think about, is, am I truly saved? Do I truly know the Lord? Fourthly, David was well aware of his sins and had repented of them. He was well aware of his sins. He had repented of his sins. All you have to do is go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12 when Nathan confronts David with his sins. He says, you're the, you're the man, David. You've sinned against God. And David says, I have sinned against the Lord. He, he confesses it. Yes, I've sinned against the Lord. He, he confesses it then and there. And then he, in, in Psalm 51, David's great psalm of confession, he says to the Lord, Lord, wash me thor- thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He says, for I know my transgression. I'm well aware of my transgression. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
And in the same psalm, he says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. The whole chapter of Psalm 51 is one of confession and, and, uh, and repentance. And David often says these things in the scriptures. Well, we'll, we'll pick this up next week. We'll, we'll tie it up with David's lifestyle next week and what this is saying here. But for tonight, I just want to leave you with two thoughts. One, we serve an almighty, all-powerful God that we often take for granted. We often take him for granted, don't we? We, we, just, we, we, we have this breath that he gives us to breathe, that we have all these things from God, and we, know we have our salvation from him, and yet we don't give him the time he deserves. Yet he's always there for us. He's always there for us. And he wants us to come to him. But be encouraged tonight. God has the power to deliver. Be encouraged. You can call upon the Lord in your time of trouble. And, and we experience many troubles. I look on the audience tonight, and I, and I see people who have experienced many troubles, including myself. And how often do we go to the Lord and ask him for his help? That's the first thought, that we serve an all-powerful God, we don't, and too often we take him for granted. And the second thing is this, although the Lord favors his people, his people cannot live any way they want to. We're favored by God. Yes, it's true, the elect are favored by God, but it doesn't mean we can live the way we want to. David says, I'm living a certain way. Yeah, he should be living that certain way. That's what God is pleased with. And they're to live right, we're to live righteously in his sight, as David says. We're to have clean hands, as David says. If we don't have clean hands, we're to do what James 4 says, and that is, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. And that whole section there, humble yourselves for the Lord mourn, is about repentance. And so it may, it may, we may need to repent tonight of our sins as we look at our life and say, wow, it's not lining up with what God says. And so God's people have been called to keep his ways to not wickedly depart from him, to be people of integrity. That's what we're to be. So we see tonight the Lord is not only praised by words that come from our mouth, but by our lifestyle, by our conduct as well. Paul put it like this in Philippians 1.27. <clears throat> he said, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's how we're to live, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The Lord wants us to praise him not only with our mouth, but with the entirety of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight again. Uh, we, we pray tonight, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We're weak, as David says, we're vulnerable. We feel our weakness, Lord. We feel our, often we're in distress of, for many reasons, and we feel that deeply. And we pray we wouldn't take that in, where we pray we look to you in these times. When, and knowing that you're the great God who can deliver, who can strengthen us, who can help us, encourage us. We pray we look to you, Lord. For our strength, we pray we'd live in a way that would please you, that you would give us the strength even to do that, Lord, by your spirit. Enable us to live lives that would be lives of, uh, that would be, befit people of integrity, people that, who are living according to the gospel. We pray you'd enable us to do that tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.